Why was Jesus eager to celebrate the Passover? That's the question we're discussing today on the Hero of the Story presented by The Gospel Project. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of The Hero of the Story, a podcast to help you explore the big story and big truths of Scripture. I'm Aaron Armstrong, and with me, as always, is Brian Dembozik. So, Brian, today we are continuing our trek through the final days of Jesus, Those fi- that big, um, explosive last week of his pre-death earthly ministry. And we are at what often looks like a very quiet moment, which is the Last Supper. Yeah, it's interesting you put it that way, because, you know, in, in one sense, it's quiet because it's him just with his uh, disciples having a meal. Uh, but this is where, I mean, the action is going to pick up from this forward. It happens at a blistering pace from this. We'll roll right into the upper room discourse. We'll roll right into uh, the retreat into the garden for prayer. And then, of course, the arrest and then the trials and crucifixion. So it, this is, it's it's the calm before the storm, if, if you will. Yeah. Um, and, and again, we're on Thursday here. Uh, the, the week has progressed in spurts up to this point. Sunday was the triumphal entry. Uh, Monday was where Jesus cursed the fig tree and some Greeks wanted to talk with him. Tuesday, uh, the disciples are going back into uh, Jerusalem with Jesus, and they see that same fig tree withered. Uh, that's where Jesus is challenged uh, by the Pharisees and Sadducees um, and scribes. Then he teaches the Olivet Discourse, which focuses a lot on, on the end times. And then Wednesday, uh, it's that's relatively quiet in terms of, of that's where we know Je- Judas made his arrangements to betray Jesus, but it doesn't seem like anything. Well, other things happen, of course, but nothing else is recorded yeah. in Scripture that happened. So that that right there is, is truly, I guess you would say, the, the calm, the quiet before the storm. So again, we're Thursday evening now. Uh, Jesus has already um, had a couple of his disciples take care of the arrangements to celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples, and that's where we drop in in Luke's account uh, of this. Yeah, so we're looking at Luke twenty two fourteen through 23. And so this is this is what... It says in in that passage, when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he said, share, take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. For the Son of Man will go away as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So they began to argue among themselves which of them it could be who was going to do it. Just pause there and just kind of enjoy another moment where the disciples are just kind of bickering amongst themselves. And uh, you got to love them because we've talked about this before. They, They remind us 
of us. <laughs> you know, they, mm-hmm. um, we would have done no better. We probably would have done a lot worse than they did. Uh, but it just reminds us of their humanity. Yes. Yes, most definitely. I mean, you know, the other accounts show them all asking this question. Is it you I? Know, bickering, but also asking. Yeah, asking Jesus. Yeah. Is it me? Yeah. And what I love is, is that even in this, I mean, we... I, I love seeing how all the Gospels put this together and and explore it in its fullness because you even get to see that they still don't quite get it even when Jesus tells them which one it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and that should not have been a shock. Here, I mean, you, we saw evidence of Judas in, in the Gospels, and I'm sure they would have seen a lot more as they lived with him for three years or so. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So as we think about this passage, what are some questions that we should be asking as we're reading it and studying it? Well, the, the first one uh, we, we come across in verse 14, the very beginning of this, it says, when the hour came, he reclined at the table. And so that prompts this question, uh, is Da Vinci's Last Supper accurate? Is that painting accurate? Mm. And the answer is... Some hard-hitting, and this is hard-hitting, hard-hitting Bible study. We're going to get to how this matters in a minute, but... Um, but no, we, we know that it's not accurate. You think of, of, of the painting and it shows all of the disciples sitting on one side of a table conveniently. So they all can be facing the camera, so to speak. Um, and they're sitting at a table upright. Well, we see here they're reclining. So we know what would have happened was in, in that day, they did not sit up on stools or chairs. They would have um, been on low couches, cushions on the ground, laying down, uh, likely on their left side and using their right hand to eat only. And uh, so this, when you understand this, um, again, Luke doesn't go into it here, but the other Gospels mentions, you know, positions where some disciples were. And you can imagine them kind of laying near each other. And it gives uh, the ability for somebody to kind of just lean back a little bit and be right near somebody else to ask a question or lean forward a little bit. The way it was just, again, the way they would have been there, you could have kind of a an aside conversation, if you will, quietly with somebody. And so when you read some of the other gospel accounts of this, understanding how they're, they are structured kind of makes sense. But why, why, does this, why does this question matter? Well, in part, it's a little bit of fun. Just, you know, anytime we can, you know, make fun of, of a, a painter who was a lot smarter than us, uh, it's it's a good thing, but <laughs> so jealousy. Jealousy. jealousy is this the is answer. just this is just sinful jealousy. That's all it is. Um, <laughs> no, but really, I, I think you know to be serious here for a second at least. Um, this should remind us that often we and people that we might be discipling or teaching will draw their understanding of Scripture from sources outside of Scripture. From culture, for example, I guarantee you that most of the people that we might be teaching or talking with about the Lord's Supper, immediately in their mind's eye, they're they're picturing something like Da Vinci. Now, mm-hmm. does this make a huge difference? Of course not. But there are other places this does make a difference. What do most people probably think of angels? Whatever they see in Hollywood. Um, former people, you know, we become angels, wings, think, you know, whatever the case may be. So... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, think about some of the common phrases that people think are in the scripture. God helps those who help themselves. Cleanliness is next to godliness and so on and so forth. 
So while this, granted, is kind of a little bit more for fun and just a little bit of an interesting tidbit, maybe not that important, I think the concept here of we need to remember for ourselves and anybody we're getting ahead of ourselves, as we usually do, anybody we're discipling or um, we're, we're talking with about this passage or any other passage, we have to remember to help them draw truth from Scripture, not from non-biblical sources, extra-biblical sources, whatever the case may be. Yeah, yeah, that is an important point. I mean, too often we we let those ex, those external factors, and there's a degree to which it's inevitable that the that the culture that we live in, our experiences are going to shape how we read it, how we read anything, yeah. but including the Bible. So when we're aware of that, at least, that gives us the opportunity to to think about, okay, how are we perceiving this, and is it correct? Yeah. And so that's really helpful. I'm glad you brought it up, and I'm and I appreciate you bringing it up in a really funny way because it let me make fun of you. Uh, any, so, anytime you can make fun of me, it's a good thing. Absolutely, absolutely. So another question though that is an interesting one, and it's actually it's actually kind of the one that that led off this episode is is why was Jesus so eager? Why did he fervently desire to eat the Passover with his disciples? So the Passover, of course, was one of the key, 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 key celebrations in the in Jewish life um, at that time and still is today. So this was, of course, a festival where they were remembering God's literal passing over of the homes of any who painted the blood of a spotless lamb on their doorposts because in the in the final plague leading up to the exodus in um you know in the original really captivity of the of the israelites in egypt the final plague was that death was going to come over the home was going to was going to come to all the homes of any who did not do this and so God spared them all, and so this was a remembrance of God's mercy and His, and His and His passing over them. So this was an important one, but it was said. But the reason that Jesus was eager to do this or fervently desired to do this, it wasn't just because of the importance of the Passover; it was because of what was going to happen next. What was going to happen later that night? Because just a few hours later he was going to be arrested and he was going to be killed for them. He was going to be the one who was sacrificed in their place. And so this meal was going, and the way that he sets it up in their conversation is to, he does this because he's trying to help them interpret what was going to happen next. Yeah. And isn't that kind of him? It is, and we're going to talk about that in a minute with with takeaways. Um, what we see here is incredibly kind because it's it's helping the disciples. They're going to be wrestling and uh, yeah. and trying to come to terms with what happens. You know, I, right. another thing as we're looking at this passage, you'll notice at one point uh, in verse seventeen it says that Jesus took a cup, and then he takes some bread. Then in verse twenty it says he also took the cup after the supper, and so a lot of people will notice there seems to be a structure to the meal, and we know there was. There would have been a structure 
of this Passover meal, certain elements that they ate, they had meaning, significance. It was a routine, of course. And uh, the, the understanding is there were four cups that were used in the Passover meal. And a lot of people, and each one had meaning, they will try to figure out which cups were used by Jesus, which two, for example, are used here. There are a number of interesting books on this. Uh, there are resources. Uh, there are ministries that will come and uh, will help perform a Passover meal, a Seder meal with, with you and explain its significance and how it points to Jesus. If, if uh, you were in a church and have never done that, I would encourage you. When I was pastoring a church, I, I had one of the ministries come out and we did it. And it, was, it was a great experience. And mm-hmm. I would encourage, I mean, it, it all is good. It may certainly add deeper richness to this. However, I would pause and say, while there likely, surely is significance deeper of which cups were used and those strong connections to the Passover, I would caution us not to think that the surface level of the text we're reading here is devoid of ample meaning in of itself, as if if you don't understand the Passover, we lose what's going on here. Not at all. What we see here is clear. The, the cup represents the blood. The bread represents the body, as we're going to talk about in a minute. That is apparent. That is the big idea. That is what Jesus wants the disciples to know in that moment. That's what he wants us to know. Had the Holy Spirit deemed it essential that we understand the Passover meal more fully, I believe it would have been explained in the Gospels more fully and those connections made more evident. Uh, Or Paul or one of the other uh, writers of the epistles would have drawn more attention to this. So it's not unimportant. But sometimes I worry that we to, to go those extra layers that are helpful, sometimes we make it seem as if the basic text itself is not sufficient. And even that phrase, basic text, makes me cringe. Um, so we don't... It's the same thing going off on a brief yeah. tangent. It's the same thing when sometimes a pastor well-intentioned will, will draw attention to the Greek words used or the Hebrew words used in the Old Testament, as it were, to add extra layers of understanding, which is great. But sometimes people might think, well, wait a minute, if I don't know all the Greek, do I really have the fullness of Scripture? Am I missing something? And, and that's kind of my heart in this. The answer is no, you're not missing anything. It's sufficient. Yeah. The English language is sufficient. Greek, Hebrew adds depth at times, yes. Um, what we see here in Luke 22 is sufficient. But if you do pursue an understanding of the Passover meal, it will just add it that much more richness to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm I, again, I'm glad you brought up that point that we have what we need. We don't just have, so yes, there's a there there's so many great resources out there that are very helpful. Education is a good and wonderful thing. Um, knowing if you are inclined to learn the languages of the, of the scriptures themselves. So, you know, Greek, Hebrew, little bits of Aramaic, which is very similar to Hebrew. You're going to be, you're going to be, you're going to be doing great. Um, if you don't know those things, you're not inclined on those you're not a second-class scholar by yeah. any chance. You're not a second-class student of the Word. You can learn just as much and just as profoundly just reading like reading your Bible, reading your preferred translation, reading a couple other ones as well. 
um, to to get that same general sense of as you look and see, okay, why would someone choose to to say this word here versus um, in this translation versus this word in the same verse in a different translation, that kind of thing. So. Um, so don't lose sleep. If anyone is like, well, if you haven't been to, been to seminary, then you can't have an opinion. That's not true. So, uh, anyway, um, next question that, uh, that is, is definitely worth asking and is actually at the center of many a heated debate is this, what did Jesus mean when he said, this is my body in verse 19? And so, I'm not kidding, and I'm not exaggerating when I say this has been the source of many a heated debate. Yes. Um, Martin Luther was uh, was was quite famous for getting uh, getting quite irate about a lot of things, but especially on this point. Yes, um, he and, and he and so, a couple other reformers got into it on this. You know, sometimes. You might think the reformers were all in the same camp, and so they were all, you know, buddies and on the same page. And yeah, they were allies in, in their concerns with the reform in general. But there, there were many important doctrines like this one that they disagreed and disagreed sharply about. Yes, yes, um, and sometimes, sometimes it's best to characterize the relationship between them as. Uh, less as being friend, friends or ally, or even allies and more being the enemy of my enemy is my friend. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, um, so those are pretty serious, serious things there. But um, there are three big ideas um, or understandings of what Jesus was saying here. One is... Well, and, and again, let me, one, let me pause and sorry, just, just make sure everybody yeah, understands. Yeah. The, the the word in focus here is is. This is. Yes. Um, yes, and that was that's actually, a very important. Yeah, that actually, I think it was Luther who kept saying that is, is, yes. is. Yes, he would be smashing yes. his hand down on his table and saying, this is, is my body. So again, as we're going to talk about in a minute, how do we interpret when Jesus says this piece of bread is my body? Now with that, I just want to make sure everybody understands the context where we're going to go. Yes. So, uh, so theologians of different of different stripes have have generally come to uh, a consensus around three different differing views that tend to dominate in different streams of um, of thought. So, the first is one that is known as transubstantiation, and so what is happening here is that. The um, the belief is is that in the um, and this is predominantly in Catholic in Roman Catholic churches where where this is this is believed and taught and um, and is the prevailing viewpoint um, is that the the elements the the bread and the fruit of, and the fruit of the vine they actually become the body and blood of Christ while retaining their outside access yes. so. They still look and taste like the the little wafer, the little wafer in their case, and uh, and the wine, um, but that's it. Yeah. So, but um, but they are, but they are 
the body and blood of Christ. And so for them, it is it is functionally a sacrifice of Christ again. Which and 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 what a, a, an interesting tidbit is this is actually some a detail that was a precursor to helping lead toward the reform, at least in Luther's case, uh, where mm-hmm. one would argue the sale of indulgences is kind of the final straw that um, I think you could argue was the impetus of Luther really challenging. Uh, when he was a young priest, he was terrified the first time he ever celebrated uh, the Lord's Supper communion uh, because he was terrified if he spilled the blood of Christ. And what would that mean on him? What kind of sin mm-hmm. would it be for him? So he was terrified thinking of the blood as the literal blood of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. So that's transubstantiation. Practiced what practiced and and believed widely among Rome uh, around, among Roman Catholic churches. The second which largely is the Lutheran view in contrast is called consubstantiation. And so with this um the bread and the and the fruit of the vine are the bread and fruit of the vine. They do not change um, and maintain their outer outer appearance and and all that. Instead, it's the spiritual presence of Christ coexists within them. And so that's how that's how they interpret the is. Yeah, and that's what there. Luther could not get away from. He kept saying, but he, Jesus said this is. He didn't say it pictures. He said it is. It is. And so he used the imagery of, and an, I think, I don't know if he said iron rod. I know it was at least a rod um, mm-hmm. that is heated. And that was his word picture. He said the rod is still the rod. The bread is still the bread. The wine is still the, the wine. But the heat represents Christ, you know, pre, its presence along with. And so when we yes. take communion and we eat the bread, it is still bread, but Christ, we are, we are also taking in Christ's presence in some way. Yes. Yeah. And so the third view is, is called the memorial view. And that is generally the prevailing view among your average evangelical Protestant church. So if you're at a Southern Baptist church, chances are this is how you guys view communion. If you're at a, um, if you're at an evangelical free church, same deal. If you're at a non-denominational church, almost guaranteed. Yeah. So um, that is, and so what this means is, in this view, the elements are entirely symbolic, and so it's a metaphorical sense in which the is takes that Jesus never intended for it to be taken literally. But that it is that he was using language to to describe something. Yeah, this was uh, championed by Zwingli, a church uh, reformer that is often not as well known as as Luther and, and the others. So sometimes you might hear this referred to as the Zwinglian view. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the argument there was, you know, where while Luther is is pounding his fist saying, "But is it says this is," Zwingli and them would say, "Yeah, but." his body was right there handing it to him. <laughs> you know, he was, he was still in the flesh when he handed it to him. It clearly was not his body. His body hadn't been broken yet. His blood had not been spilled yet. 
and and again, the Bible uses metaphors quite a bit and, and other figures of speech. So Zwingli would push back and and uh, for again, for full disclosure, Aaron and I would both be in this memorial camp. Um, mm-hmm. we, we would we would hold to this position. And largely because we think it's the right one. Yeah. <laughs> but we respect everyone else. Yeah, and, and I you know, I respect so. Luther while I disagree with his his conclusion. Mm-hmm. I do respect, and this is where we in the memorial camp have to be careful not to downplay this too too much. Yeah. Um, and so we can devalue the Lord's Supper as we celebrate it. So while I would say, no, it's not the physical body and nothing is... The, the key here is the Roman, the Roman Catholic Church would argue that grace is imparted through communion. Yes. That's why it's so important that you take it. Luther is kind of walking that middle ground as he often did in many things. Keep in mind, Luther was not a reformer at the beginning, in terms of a new church, he wanted to truly reform the Roman Catholic Church to change it. So a lot of Lutheran doctrines are very similar to Roman Catholic doctrines. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is one where you can see the wrestling with him. He, he doesn't want to give up the, the deep, weighty meaning of the communion, but he recognizes grace cannot be imparted in it. There's got to be something else. There's got to be some other spiritual meaning. So he's kind of splitting the difference, if you will. And in Zwingli and, yeah. and others would say, no, this is this is the memorial. There, there, there's nothing happening here, but we're worshiping in memorial. So again, the, the problem is sometimes we can take the Zwinglian view too far, the memorial view too far, and really devalue and not, not appreciate the weightiness of the Lord's Supper that we're celebrating. Yeah. And it's important to note that the the way that we value or devalue it really come doesn't come down to how often we we celebrate communion i mean so often we view it as um and i've heard this many many times as well we don't we don't uh take communion every single week because we don't want to cheapen it yeah. The problem, the thing is, though, is it's your heart and it's your attitude toward it. So are you coming with the appropriate reverence thinking about what it means or are you just coming and taking? And that's the the way that it's devalued. Um, And so I'm I'm glad that you brought that up. Now, another question question that that um, is worth asking um, is what does this passage imply about how we celebrate the Lord's Supper today which we've kind of touched on briefly here but we um, we talked about this a lot in an episode just a couple of weeks ago when we addressed this particular um, this particular issue as our essential doctrine um, you know this was um, at the time of this recording about two weeks ago. Yeah. So um, rather than rather than go through that entire episode again, here's what we would just encourage. We'd encourage just go back and listen to that. Yeah, it's 20 minutes. Yeah, I think we talked about how frequent should we celebrate it, um, who who can celebrate it. Uh, we we I think all the practical things we at least hit on a little bit in that one. Yeah, yeah, we touched on just about everything at that in that one. So um, so again, to save you guys. Um, you know, 20, 30 minutes of, of us teasing each other. <laughs> we, uh, we would encourage you to go listen to that one instead. All right. So let's think about this passage from a discipleship perspective, Brian. So what kind of guidance can we offer 
um, someone who is working through this passage with someone else. Yeah, we we intimated this earlier, and so let me just kind of revisit. The, the first one is this is a reminder of the compassion of, of Jesus. Um, again, think think about the disciples, and it's why the humanity of them is we have to appreciate it. We um, They didn't know what was going on. They were humans. Uh, they didn't have the full counsel of Scripture like we have. They didn't know how it was all going to turn out. So imagine them living through it. And they're trying to come to terms with what's going on. And Jesus had begun telling them more in earnest that he was going to be rejected, but they still, they didn't quite get it. I mean, Peter argued with Jesus, you know, at one point. Um, and so they're struggling to understand. And imagine what's going to happen literally hours after this, when they see Jesus arrested and put on these mock trials, these, these shams of a trial when they see him mm-hmm. beaten and blighted and so forth, and then eventually crucify and die, they are going to go through the emotional and spiritual and physical ringer. And Jesus knows this. And so he, in this moment, this quiet moment with them in the middle of this, this hectic week, he is pulling them aside and he, in compassion and love, is painting a picture to help them. Did they understand it in this moment? Arguably not. Did they understand it as they were watching it? Perhaps not. Uh, watching it meaning the crucifixion. But you have to think they drew back on this quite a bit mm-hmm. and recognized how kind Jesus was to celebrate this, to help them. And so we just see the heart here of Jesus to prepare them. And it's a reminder of his heart for us. Yeah. Yeah. It's also a reminder of Jesus' sacrifice. I mean, and what we need to be careful of is, is there is a tendency for us to sterilize the cross. We tend to turn something that, you know, in movie terms was very much an R-rated spectacle into a family-friendly um, type of event. And and we should we ought not do that. I mean, it was it, it truly was gruesome what happened and and i'm not the type that is going to go into all the all the the grisly details of it um because honestly i don't know that that's always necessary um i mean there's a there's a uh there's an intensity to it that can be too much and um so uh so no we don't watch the passion of the christ every uh Every Easter at my house, um, for example, <laughs> um, but uh, but but remembering the fact that this is not something that's squeaky clean and sterile and sanitized that helps us as we as we think about the elements and um, it reminds and and it should remind us as we come to those as we take them. As we, as we, you know, depending on how your church practices this, if, if an individual is saying to you as you are taking the bread and, um, and the cup and saying, you know, this is Christ's body broken for you, this is Christ's blood shed for you, or if it's just one person over the entire congregation saying these things, we have to remember that that actually happened. Yeah. It, it, to me, it, it, there's that tangible nature of it, uh, which is help. I mean, we, whenever we engage more than one sense, it, it's, it's for our benefit. 
And uh, even though, again, we holding the memorial view, it's just a piece of bread or a cracker or whatever the case may be. And it's just mm-hmm. usually it's grape juice. Some would use wine. Um, it, but it's still it's tangible. And so there are many times I just stare into the color, the red color. And, and you know, it's easy to think of blood being spilled. And um, so, it, yeah, it's 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 helpful anytime we can engage those senses. I think the yeah. third thing we need to remember is that this is a reminder of the victory of Jesus and help people that we're discipling understand that. That, you know, I think we may have talked about this on the episode of, of talking about the Lord's Supper, but there usually when we celebrate, it's, it's a very somber tone. And there's a place for that. But I, I would argue there's also a place for celebration because. We can't miss that Jesus speaks of a future celebration of this meal. He says, we're going to celebrate this again. And this requires that Jesus be a living Jesus, not a dead Jesus. And this requires a victorious Jesus, not a defeated Jesus. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we, we look back with, we, it would be right for us to have some somberness to us. Because, I mean, as we just talked about, to think about the brutality that Christ endured should be somber but I would say maybe we should not leave our people in a somber mood. Maybe we should move them toward, through somberness, into joy and ex- expectancy of Jesus who has defeated sin and death. Uh, he did not stay dead. On the third day, he rose again, and he is returning again. And one day he will return, and we'll celebrate this with him again in person and that should motivate us. That should excite us. And there's a sense of, of urgency and, and joy involved with that. So victory is also in mind here. Brian, that is a good place for us to wrap this up. So uh, thank you for, for chatting about this today. And thank you all for listening to today's episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please do leave a sincere five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever po- or whatever platform you use to listen to the show. And for more resources to help you focus your ministry on the gospel, please visit gospelproject.com.